Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. He once accidentally included a customer in a reply all email saying that the airline owed the customer nothing, and he wasn't sorry about it afterwards. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Well, imagine never actually working in an industry, but being such a real groupie, meeting key people from the industry, following all the trends, and maybe even sending your own reply to all email. (laughs) And if you made that airlines, then you'd be Seth Kaplan, NPR here and now transportation analyst. Oh, I've made that mistake more than once, Ben. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about a Boeing 737 issue that's sort of even bigger than the max grounding. Even bigger. Wow. We'll listen to a real customer complaint against an airline. Why cash is not king on a flight. That's in our finer wine segment. And we'll take a question about where Moxie or whatever it ends up being called is going to fly. Let's first prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Yeah, Ben, we've talked in the past about how the impact of the Boeing 737 MAX grounding on the global airline fleet of airplanes is relatively minor. Of course, that's not to minimize the tragedies that brought about the grounding. Those poor 346 people and their families. And the impact is growing as there were supposed to be more planes in the fleet. But the vast majority of airplanes in the world aren't affected. And mainstream media have been pointing out to travelers that, of course, we're talking just about the MAX not the 737NGs, uh, which make up most of the world's fleet of 737s. NG stands for new generation, which is what they were compared to even older 737s back before the MAX came out. But now Boeing has agreed to modify roughly 7,000 737NGs. There are less than a thousand maxes in the world for perspective. Uh, the issue has to do with something that caused a fatality on Southwest Airlines back in 2018. A fan blade from an engine came loose, busted open the engine cowling, as it's called. It's the cover, and the debris uh, pierced the fuselage and, and killed a woman. Now, now Boeing has agreed with the FAA to fortify those cowlings on, on all the 737 NGs. That'll take time. In the meantime, regular inspections should keep everyone safe. The National Transportation Safety Board, uh, by the way, cleared Boeing and Southwest of any wrongdoing in that 2018 incident. They said there was nothing they could have done to detect the problem before the incident. I guess that's both good news for them and maybe a little scary in the sense that if there was, if you couldn't find it, uh, you know, what's what's to perhaps prevent an incident like that in the future? Although, of course, these planes have flown billions of passengers safely. All that aside, Ben, what I want to ask you is whether you think there's any connection here between what Boeing now has to do on these 7,000 planes and the max grounding. And what I mean is with the FAA now conscious of not looking like it's too cozy with Boeing after being accused of being exactly too cozy with Boeing with the max certification and all the rest of it is Boeing paying the price for that with this situation. I hope you're not right about that, Seth, but you may be. The reason I hope you're not right about that is safety is so important in the industry and being 
safe in our airplanes, especially when the airplanes are made by one company, in this case, Boeing, the engines made by yeah. a different company, in this case, yeah. GE, yeah. the cowlings yeah. being sort of a GE issue related to the engine. But of course, the certification of the airplane is the airframe plus the engines, yeah. the whole thing. I would hope that if there are problems with one, they're identified independent of what else is going around. That said, I have to believe just because of human nature that everybody's watching everything more closely right now. And as a result of the terrible incidents of the MAX, those who certify airplanes and those who oversee safety airplanes are looking with an especially bright flashlight right now at everything that they can look at. And I don't think this affects just Boeing. I'm sure it affects Airbus sure. as well. Everybody who is responsible for overseeing safety as a regulator or as an overseer in governments or agencies that watch these things recognizes that this terrible thing has happened in the world in part because of failures in that process. So we need to sort of watch everything more closely. And it just, you know, I, I hate to... I hate to sort of make this something so trivial, but if you're driving a really long distance and at one point, maybe you get a little sleepy and then, you know, you wake up right away and realize, whoa, I was yeah. going off the road or something like that. You're especially vigilant that sure. next couple miles, sure. right? <laughs> because you realize I yeah. can't let that happen. And I think that kind of maybe what happened. So you may be right. I hope you're not. But I think you probably yeah, are. And, and speaking of the Max, at the Dubai Air Show earlier this month, Boeing managed to get some Max orders at an air show that was otherwise better for Airbus. But yeah, Boeing sold 60 Maxes, sort of. Air Astana of Kazakhstan uh, signed a letter of intent for 30 of the planes. Sun Express of Turkey. Uh, it's actually a the Sun Express is a joint venture, I believe, between Lufthansa and Turkish Airlines. Uh, it ordered 10 of them. Uh, somebody else who Boeing couldn't identify publicly yet ordered 20. Ben, has Boeing gotten the monkey off its back in terms of max orders? Well, I'm sure that they are having to essentially economically create incentive to get the yeah. monkey off their back. My guess is I have no idea what these what these orders were priced at, but I'm guessing Boeing is have to is having to create especially sweet deals for some airlines to commit to a plane that is not yet returned to the sky. Now everybody expects the plane's going to return to the sky. It was a very popular plane before the crashes. Um, and if assuming that the problems are really fixed and the pilot training is well understood and everything's well documented and regulators are comfortable, it'll be a very safe plane again. That said, getting orders is really important for Boeing. And I'm certain that whatever Aristana and other and this other operator are paying is probably less than the average price Boeing was selling the planes up until that point. Also, I might want to point out that, as you know, the city of Astana changed its name to Nur Sultan. So uh, I guess Air Astana is going to stay Air Astana, not Air Nur Sultan. help us if we have to say that. <laughs> good, good catch, man. <laughs> Can't get anything by you. And by the way, uh, you know, there were those headlines after the Paris Air Show, the much bigger Paris Air Show uh, over the summer. Toward the end of it, IAG, the parent company of British Airways, Iberia, Aer Lingus, of whaling, I guess now soon uh, Air Europa, right? ordered ostensibly 200 maxes and that was supposed to be the big good news for boeing but don't look now that order 
has still not firmed up, right? Like the Aristana order here. I, remember, I chose those words carefully. I said letter of intent. I didn't say firm order. IAG also, I think it was a, an MOU in their case, a memorandum of understanding, basically said they intended to take 200 maxes, but that has not yet firmed up, has it? It hasn't. My sense is that that order was for lack of a better term, sort of a vote of confidence in Boeing by IAG. IAG is a big operator, Boeing airplanes. They knew that Boeing was reeling from this. Maybe they felt that sort of some confidence that they're going to get the problem fixed, the plane will be flying again, we'll put this letter of intent. But I've seen no signs that that has been firmed up. That doesn't mean that IAG won't eventually take more Boeing airplanes and more Maxes. But if you're Boeing and you're looking at your order book and what's firm and what isn't, and for most manufacturers, every order has some probability distribution around it, meaning will all these planes get delivered? Will more of them get delivered? Will some be canceled? Will some be deferred and things like that? This IAG letter of intent probably was had a particularly large distribution <laughs> around its uh, likelihood yeah, at this of point, happening. Still more a press release than an, than an aircraft order. We'll see what happens with that going forward. Meanwhile, Air Arabia ordered another 120 Airbus uh, 320 family Neo aircraft. Uh, the, that's the Max's competitor. Uh, that includes some of the new XLR, the extra long range version. Airbus also sold a couple dozen other A320 Neos and A220s. What you to be called the C-Series. So if anything, the order gap against Boeing only grew uh, in Dubai. Airbus sold a bunch of wide bodies too, A350s, with airlines growing impatient about delays with the updated 777, called the 777X. Uh, And even uh, an Emirates order for 30 Boeing 787s wasn't really such good news because those 30 Dreamliners that it ordered will be instead of 26 of the much more expensive 777Xs. Now, Ben, I realize part of the issue there is just when the planes will be available. Emirates can get the Dreamliner sooner. But we also have an airline here like Emirates, which claims to still love its giant A380s that nobody else wants, taking smaller wide bodies. That continues kind of a global trend of of airlines biasing toward these smaller wide body or, or twin aisle uh, long range aircraft, doesn't it? That's right, Seth. The A380 was a um, bold plan by Airbus. And part of its justification when they first announced the plane was in a world where infrastructure is tighter and tighter, the only way to get more volume into really tight airports like London Heathrow or JFK or Tokyo's airports or things like that is to bring in bigger average airplanes. And so they saw the A380 as a solution to a real estate problem, among other things. You know, with these bigger airplanes, we can serve big routes like New York to London and maybe not to have as much frequency because we can put more people on every plane and still just use one gate. Even though when I board my Emirates flight out of Dulles, it they yeah. take like five <laughs> gates to board from it because <laughs> they segregate right. the cabin all up. <laughs> but um, but um, but I think that's right. The economics of most routes don't really favor that large a plane. And while certainly larger planes have better unit economics than small airplanes, by that I mean the cost of one seat on a larger plane is less to produce than the cost of one seat on a smaller plane because you're spreading all those seats over the costs of the expensive airplane. Yeah, you still have the same number of pilots even if they're flying 500 people instead of you know 200 people or whatever, sure. 
That's right. And you're still paying for one gate at the airport and one landing, even though that that landing might be a little more expensive because the plane's heavier. But as airlines plan their fleet planning, they find that most routes support two to 300 seats more than they support more than 300 seats. So airplanes like the 777, the 777X, the 787, the A350, the A330neo, those are the right size airplanes for what most airlines are looking for for most of the long haul operations in the world. And this XLR that Air Arabia just ordered is a very exciting airplane in the sense that it'll fly very, very far. It's got a lot of fuel tanks, um, and it's it can it's got a lot of legs, as airline people like to say. There are many routes that otherwise would have needed something like the four engine A three eighty to make that that it'll fly just fine and do it in a much more economic way and ultimately open up more routes. At some point, we're going to reach the limit of the longest route in the world, of course, because once you fly a certain amount of distance, you can get there shorter yeah. going the other way around, right? Yeah. It's, we, we live on a globe. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, I think um, Qantas was sort of testing these 20-hour, yeah, 19-hour trips, which, yeah. Project yeah. Sunrise, which, which I kind of chuckled at because is 19 hours on a plane really that different than 17 and a half hours on a plane? And yeah. those have existed for a while. So it's uh, I like where Airbus is going with this. Airbus has had a big deficit to Boeing, as we've talked about in earlier episodes on the wide bodies. It's a place where Boeing has had an advantage and has maintained that advantage despite the max challenges, possibly because of combining things with the narrow bodies or the single aisles, Airbus is leveraging that to try to close that gap as well. Airbus is doing well selling airplanes right now to Boeing's detriment. Boeing will be back strong, however. Were you ever on the other side of an A380 sales presentation uh, running airlines? You you talked about how, how Airbus was making the pitch. Did you ever actually see the pitch made to you to try to get you and, and uh, your colleagues at an airline to buy one to buy some A380s. Never uh, seriously. As you know, no US airline yeah. flies the A380. We joked when I was at Spirit about how awesome it would be to fly like uh, an A380 with 900 <laughs> seats on it from like <laughs> New York to Florida and be able to break even with like a $6 fare. <laughs> and we used to just joke about that, forgetting the fact that right, it would take like an hour and a half to board the, board the thing. Than to fly. <laughs> That's great. We never actually approached Airbus and said, you know, how much would you sell us? In, in the last years of that program, they probably would have uh, would have taken any order they could get, even one like that from Spirit. Well, meanwhile, there uh, was a widely publicized ranking out recently. This comes out periodically of the most expensive and least expensive U.S. airports based on average domestic airfares. Among major airports, Washington Dulles was the most expensive with an average domestic airfare of $427 each way, followed closely by Charlotte at $426. Uh, Las Vegas was the least expensive at $240. Well, then uh, the points guy, uh, a lot of people familiar with them, uh, did their own ranking. They took the same fare data, but then layered in some of the other things that factor into how expensive it actually is to fly from an airport. Everything from how much it costs to Uber from a city center to the airport uh, to how much it costs to rent a luggage cart at the airport. Factoring in all that, Newark was actually the most expensive airport, followed by New York JFK and then Dulles. Uh, Las Vegas was still the least expensive. But Ben, 
When we're looking at domestic fair data, I I think there are two giant problems uh, with some of the rankings in terms of really comparing apples to apples. First of all, going back to that ranking of just domestic airfares, uh, New York JFK and Washington Dulles are two of the most expensive, whereas New York LaGuardia and Washington Reagan National are somewhere in the middle of the pack. But anyone who lives in New York or Washington or flies to either of those places doesn't need a study to know. It actually usually seems to be more expensive to fly from the more central airports, more to fly from LaGuardia to Chicago than from JFK to Chicago or from Reagan National to St. Louis than from Dulles to St. Louis. What's going on there? Well, Seth, there are a couple of problems with this study. It looks at the math correctly, what do people pay for their average ticket out of places like Dulles or JFK, but it doesn't look at where they're actually going. There's a regulation in both airports, in in the close-in airports in Washington and New York, in DCA, Reagan National, and LaGuardia that are called perimeter rules that limit by regulation how far you can fly. For LaGuardia, you can't fly further than 1,500 miles. For Reagan, I think it's about 1,250 And as a result of that, Dulles has flights to San Diego and Seattle and L.A. and Puerto Rico, which counts as domestic for these things. JFK, the same thing. And those are those flights are weighted in to the flights to the Midwest and to Florida and others. So the average, of course, is higher because it's going to be more expensive to fly further. If you look at the average stage length, which is the term airline use for how far a flight flies, JFK flights average over 1,400 miles for every plane that takes off, whereas LaGuardia right down the road is only 820 miles, so 600 miles shorter on average. So, of course, the fares at LaGuardia are going to be less than JFK. And in Washington, the Reagan National is only 740 miles against Dulles over 1,000 miles. So, again, 300 miles shorter for DCA. Of course, they're going to be less. When I worked at U.S. Airways from DCA, we flew to eight cities in West Virginia. Can you even name eight cities in West Virginia? Is that <laughs> or 15 cities in Pennsylvania. And so you're waiting in those average with small planes against big airplanes flying large distances. Now, in both cases, more at Reagan than at LaGuardia, there have been some exemptions. There are flights to Denver from LaGuardia, which is longer than 1,500 miles, but that's a specific exemption that at some point was given maybe to United or maybe to Frontier to fly that route or maybe legislators in Denver lobbied to sort of get an exemption, but anyone can't fly further than that. There are more exemptions from Reagan. There are flights from Reagan to Seattle, to L.A., to Phoenix, again, on exemption basis, you can only guess that that means there's more congressional <laughs> people who want to get home. <laughs> so, so, they lo- so they lobby to get a nonstop flight to their home city. But uh, it's th- that's what's really driving these differences. Now, it's important to recognize that airports have expenses to them. And the cost of operating in an airport is a part of an airline's cost structure, but it's not an enormous part. And Ben, those average stage lane figures that you gave courtesy of Dio, we calculated those using their schedule data. As for the other thing that skews the numbers a lot, although I'm not sure how meaningful it is, I mentioned before that Charlotte is one of the most expensive airports. Now, in Charlotte's case, that's not because it features very long domestic flights on average. It doesn't. What it does have is a dominant hub airline, American, 
with a lot of markets, it monopolizes on a nonstop basis. And those flights are indeed expensive. Anybody who lives in a place like Charlotte or you know, it could be Minneapolis flying Delta to somewhere that only Delta serves nonstop you know, knows that those flights tend to be expensive. So if you look at uh, Charlotte, um, mentioned before, uh, what, $426 average, I compared that to two nearby airports that are kind of, you know, also serve mid-sized markets. Nashville, the average is uh, $340 roughly. Raleigh-Durham, also $340 roughly. Again, two cities kind of in the same region. Uh, You know, the stage lengths aren't so different. So why is Charlotte so much higher? Well, it's because of those flights that are averaged in, those nonstop flights that don't exist at the other airports. Charlotte, Ben, has 137 nonstop destinations compared to 49 for Raleigh-Durham and 63 for Nashville. But when you compare apples to apples, let's say you want to fly to Providence, uh, Rhode Island. There's a nonstop flight from Charlotte to Providence. There's not one from Raleigh-Durham or or from Nashville. And guess what? The nonstop flight from Charlotte, because there's only one airline that does it, to Providence is very expensive. But here's the thing. You could fly from Charlotte and connect in some other place like Atlanta. And then the fare is very similar to what the connecting fare is from Raleigh-Durham or Nashville. Am I missing anything there? Or is that also when people talk about sort of the, the very expensive averages at these at these you know, somewhat monopolized hub cities, is it kind of overstated? Is it not as important as, as, it, as it looks in these rankings? You're exactly right. And you've identified the reason that it exists. There's a love-hate relationship between customers and hub airlines, (laughs) the the ones that live in those hub cities. If you live in Atlanta, you love the fact that you can fly nonstop to almost everywhere you want in the United States, thanks to Delta. But the cost for having that service is that in all the places where Delta is essentially the monopoly nonstop carrier, meaning they're the only ones flying that service, not because somebody else couldn't come and fly it, but because it economically doesn't make sense for someone to come in and fly it, the average price is going to be higher. You see this in Charlotte. You see it in Dallas. You see it in Minneapolis. You see it in places that Big airlines have really big hubs. So it doesn't surprise me that Charlotte is more expensive than Nashville or Raleigh, simply because Nashville and Raleigh don't have as much nonstop service. And for the services where they have to connect, they're competing with every other hub. It really is simple supply and demand. When there are more seats and more competitors, prices go down. When there are fewer seats and a single competitor, prices stay up. Now, ask people who've lived in Pittsburgh for a long time, whether they liked the world better when U.S. Airways had a big hub there or after U.S. Airways closed the hub. When U.S. Airways had the hub, people complained a lot about how expensive it was to fly from Pittsburgh to a whole bunch of places. After U.S. Airways closed the hub, the average fares in Pittsburgh went way down, but the number of cities flown from Pittsburgh also went way down. So it really is a give and take. Do you want a lot of service or do you want low fares? They don't really go hand in hand. And a lot of the reason that average fare declines when you have less service 
is just because those monopoly nonstop markets go away. It's not so much, uh, again, from Charlotte, if you want to fly to Providence and you don't mind connecting and having it take you know five hours to get there instead of two, um, you can get those cheap fares generally because of what you said, because there are lots of airlines competing for the connecting passengers. You can fly Delta connecting in Atlanta less conveniently from Charlotte to Providence. You'll pay something similar to where to what you would pay at those other cities where you just don't have the nonstop option. Uh, but of course, people see those those high nonstop fares in the monopoly markets and you, know, you can't blame them, obviously, for, for feeling as you described. Well, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, it's time to take a question from one of your fellow listeners. It's that plus fine or wine next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, this week's question is from Yoni in Lawrence, Kansas. Hi, this is Yoni at the University of Kansas as a student. And I have two questions for you. The first question is, what do you see as the future of Moxie Airlines, the airline that Dave and Neelam has started? Uh, what routes do you potentially see that airline uh, starting? The second question is, what suggestions do you have for a student who's interested in getting in the airline industry? Thank you so much, and I love the show. So first, Moxie. You know, I'll... I'll- kick off this discussion, Ben, because I was actually the journalist who broke the story about Moxie, that it, that it was uh, that it was going to come out. And it should note that um, Moxie seems to be sort of the working, uh, the, the, the working name. They'll likely rename it because there's a hotel chain called Moxie. But anyway, yeah, this this uh, presentation landed in my lap back when uh, when the story first came out. And they had a couple of route maps that they made it clear. These are examples of, of what they might do, uh, not necessarily committing to any of this, but they've said publicly, you know, secondary airports, it's very clear and maybe beyond secondary, maybe tertiary, but uh, underutilized airports. And so what, what they showed in this presentation was uh, the, these two networks out of Providence, Rhode Island, which which often is an alternative airport for for the Boston area. In that case, not a you know not a totally uh, uh, unused airport, but but one where there's clearly room. And then the other one is one where there's not much going on. And it's Gary, Indiana, uh, which which airlines over the years have tried to use, as you know, Ben, as an alternative for Chicago. It's south of Chicago. Uh, They've never had much success with it. And I have to say, literally, some of the airports on these these route maps, I had to look up the airport codes. (laughs) What is FTW? Fort <laughs> yeah, yeah, Fort Worth. Uh, you know, there's there's an airport, not DFW, not Dallas Left Field, which is you know kind of a smaller theater. This would be a third airport for the Dallas Metroplex, and that's one place where they show uh, an example of being able to fly from Providence, uh, along with all of the other sort of usual secondary airports. You know, Providence to Burbank and Ontario and Orange County, but not. Los Angeles, LAX, uh, Oakland and San Jose, but not 
San Francisco, Sanford, but not Orlando, St. Petersburg, but not Tampa. From Gary, Indiana, they show flights to Phoenix Mesa Airport, but not the main airport in Phoenix. Those kinds of things. Now, all of this could evolve. And and as I said, uh, and Ben, uh, let you take it from here. You know, uh, some of these kinds of ideas have been tried over the years without much success, especially when I look at the idea of, of, of running a big operation out of, out of Gary, Indiana. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, as you know, Seth, uh, I like to play board games. And a number yeah. of years ago, I was looking for a game that had gone out of print. And I went into a local game store and I said, any chance you have a copy of this game has seen it? And the guy looked at me and said, you know, there's a reason games go out of print. <laughs> and I thought that was a, not only smart, but it taught me a lot in one statement. And uh, I think of that when I think of Moxie's business plan in a way. Now, that said, if you had made a career of betting against David Nealman, you would uh, have yeah. a very short career. Because, <laughs> exactly. Because he's been very successful in all of his startups from Morris Air, WestJet, JetBlue, Azul, you know, then the takeover of tap and things. He's been an incredibly successful developer, entrepreneur, and a good visionary in the airline business. Oh, yeah. And you don't want to bet against him. So my, just based on track record, you wouldn't bet against Moxie either. Yeah, better for the doubt. Yeah, yeah, for the that's right. That said, it's not that people don't know these airports exist. And it's not that some of them haven't been tried. The idea of buying a very expensive asset a really good asset, the A220, but inexpensive, to fly secondary to secondary is at least subject to some, well, we got to see if this works. And it might work. A number of years ago when I was at Spirit, we looked at flying to Gary as a way to lower our costs to serve Chicago. We ultimately decided not to simply because for our customer, there was no, at the time at least, public transportation to Gary. And we thought that would be a challenge for the spirit kind of customer. Uh, Moxie might be different, right? There's also something funny that doesn't exist on Wikipedia anymore. But if you Wikipedia Gary, Indiana back in 2010 or so, you know, at the bottom of Wikipedia, it says other places on Wikipedia this entry can be found. Uh-huh. One of them said cities that smell. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just hysterical. God. And it's now gone from Wikipedia. So uh, fair or not. Yeah, that, that was that was there. Yeah, exactly. And that's, <laughs> that's yeah, right. But so, for business. So, so, you know, I love the airplane. The 220 is a great airplane. It's it's the newest narrow body to be developed. And, you know, 30 years later than the A320 and the 737s and, and so on. David Nealman's got a great track record. So it's got a lot of strength in its bones, basically, in the idea. But buying an expensive asset, that airplane, to fly secondary, only secondary airports is a real challenge, I think. And it's going to be... Uh, It's going to be speculative, I think, as to how successful that will be. Again, if you go back to Spirit, we served Mesa Airlines for a while and eventually moved to Sky Harbor. And the operation just got a lot better when we went to Sky Harbor. There are just a lot more people. We found, for example, if you, at least at the time, and again, things change, if you went to OTAs, online travel agents, and you put in Phoenix, at one point, it wouldn't include Mesa in the search. Right, yeah. And so, you know, that's an important thing. Will When people say, I want to go to Chicago, will it include Gary in the search? That will be very influential as to whether or not Gary can work as a city or not. And I'm sure that's something that David Nealman and his team are looking at and are making sure those things are in place. And, and uh, so for Yoni's other question, 
about what should he do if he wants to if he's crazy enough uh, to go into the airline industry <laughs> any <laughs> any advice Ben other than no don't do it and I'm joking of course the the industry needs young enthusiastic smart people like Yoni uh, what uh, what should Yoni do well you know the the not go there might be the best I actually think it's great. <laughs> Yoni might want to work in the business, though, as you sometimes mention at the beginning of the podcast, if I teach about the way airlines work, I do that in a class at George Mason University. And many times the students in that class come to the class often with a relatively simplistic view of the only good jobs left in the United States are places like Google and Amazon and Apple and places like that. And I think it's great that that's of course not true. And there are students who say, I want to work in a more traditional industry or a more capital intensive industry like the airline business. So that's great. Airlines are always looking for smart people. They're looking for people who are willing to work hard. They're looking for people who are comfortable with data and big data. And the two places that airlines hire the most people are in the finance area, in like financial planning and analysis. And so doing spreadsheet modeling and understanding where the airline's flying that makes money and doesn't make money and how the airline can be more efficient. And in the commercial areas like pricing, revenue management, scheduling, those kind of areas that use technical skills. In the management of an airline, those are the areas that hire directly sort of out of college mostly. Of course, if you want to work directly in an operation, you can go work at an airport and work at a ticket counter or work on the ramp or something like that. So there's a lot of places. Every major airline in the United States lists the jobs they have available on their website. And if you go to their website and you know find the link, they'll call it jobs or careers or whatever, they list and they'll say, we've got these ticket agents in Phoenix and we've got this schedule manager in or schedule analyst in our headquarter operation here. And the best thing to do would be look through those sites, figure out what jobs are available, which might be interesting to you and where you have a background for, learn some of the terminology of the industry, learn some of the issues about the airline industry, listen to all these podcasts so you get a little better understanding of what's going on in the industry, and then you'll look really good in in the interview. Some of the students from my class classes have gone on to work in the airline industry and they've commented to me that they were not only very comfortable in their interview, but that they really stood out because after going to the class, they understood some of the terminology, some of the more current trends of the industry. And that showed that level of interest made the employer excited about them. So good luck, Yoni. Yeah. And when I see people in, in management at airlines, it seems like those are the paths you mentioned, starting at an airport uh, or other, other people start as a, like an intern at, a, at an airline headquarters. And then the airline uh, is impressed with, with their work in that capacity. And then there's a job opening and, uh, and, and they end up coming up that way. And and the other thing, Ben, you mentioned it's a capital intensive industry. It's also a labor intensive industry. And so that's why in some regards, there are more opportunities in the airline industries, in the airline industry rather than in some of those other, which you might think of as sort of sexier industries, because the airline industry just needs more people to produce the same amount of revenue, uh, uh, more people than Google needs or Amazon needs or, or than any of those other company needs. And although it has become less labor intensive over the years because of automation, uh, you know, because you don't need somebody at the ticket counter handing out every boarding pass anymore, it will always be a more labor intensive industry uh, than those other industries, won't it? 
That's right. But it's also such an important industry to the country, too. You know, if your concern is climate change or your concern is sustainability, the airline industry is not a ridiculous place to work because people need to move and businesses need to move. So finding ways for the industry to adapt and yet still be able to move the economy and grow the economy are really important things. There's also, while airlines are private businesses in the United States, there's enormous governmental regulation and policy implications of flying. We talked about perimeter rules just a few minutes ago, right? And so- If your interest is government and control of industry to some way, there's a lot of that in the airline industry. So the airline industry can be a good place for someone who might not necessarily think, yeah, that's an unnatural place I want to go, as well as the fact that, you know, you got the labor side, you've got the capital side, you got big finance side. There's just a lot to do in an airline. And one of the things that has made it an exciting career for me it was that the fact that you can work in a lot of different places and always be on a steep learning curve. Yeah. Well, do you have a question for us? Uh, you could do it. Yoni did call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Uh, again, 305-379-7429. Or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. That's questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential. Airlines Confidential, all one word. Well, beginning our initial descent uh, on today's show, it's time for Fine or Whine. Uh, We listen to an actual customer complaint and then talk about whether the complaint is fine or are they just whining. And Ben, you have a complaint, or at least somebody does, that you're going to read to us. Yes, Seth. Frank in Cerrito, California wrote to us and said, I took flight 3262. I asked for an alcoholic beverage. When it came time to pay, she told me I need to pay with a card and I can't pay with cash. Eventually, both of us understood that I lost my debit card. I asked how much the drink is worth and she said $7. I said, I can't pay with cash. Can I get a complimentary? She said she would think about it. When she came back, she said she was sorry and she couldn't justify the complimentary drink. Okay, Ben. Fine or whine? Who's who's, who's right here? This is a tough one, Seth. I feel for the customer who wanted their drink on the flight, but there's a reality in the business that cash just hasn't worked in airplanes, and airlines are pretty transparent about that. So I think that Frank should have probably known that and put a few bucks in his pocket or a few, put a, uh, gotten a, a, Uh, you know, maybe a prepaid card or something to make it work. The issue here, Seth, is that airlines have found it very, very difficult to control the management of cash in an airplane. When customers give cash, uh, it doesn't always get collected fully. It can get lost. It puts the flight attendants in a difficult situation of having to manage, you know, a little bag of cash, which people, if they knew that, could put them at risk of of something. And airlines have found that going to all digital sort of services, just like you've seen on roadways now that don't let you pay cash to a toll agent anymore, right? You've got to have your little device yeah. or they charge you by the plate, the same kind of thing. They find that it's just a much more secure, safer way to transact. What that does do, however, is for people without a credit card or without an active credit or debit card or forgets one or lost it, they're kind of shut out. I'm not surprised that the airline didn't let the flight attendant provide the complimentary drink. There are airlines who would. There are airlines who would say, 
I understand your situation. I'll get your drink and I'll just comp it. And some airlines might do that. I'm not going to suggest who might and who might not, but I don't know that every airline would react the same as this one did uh, in the case of Southwest. But I do understand why airlines do it. I think they're quite transparent on it. So I would say 52-48 in favor of the airline on this one. But I certainly understand Frank's frustration. Yeah. Uh, Interesting that even though it costs money to process credit cards, and you might think uh, as a starting point, you know, wouldn't cash be cheaper because the airline gets to keep all of it because of all the problems you mentioned? Uh, They'd rather pay the 3% uh, or whatever it is they negotiate in terms of the credit card fees than, than, than deal with all of that. The other thing is I've seen customers kind of solve this on their own. I I remember being on a flight. It was actually a spirit flight uh, years ago uh, from Cartagena, Colombia up to Fort Lauderdale. Um, and Columbia is a place where, and, and and this goes back the better part of a decade. You know, maybe credit card penetration not as high as it is in, in the United States, and yet you know an airline kind of has the same policy everywhere. Uh, there was a customer flying out of there who wanted something. Of course, Spirit charges for everything. It doesn't have to be an alcoholic beverage, um, just any kind of snack. Didn't have a credit card. And then I saw another customer say, oh, well, here, just give me the cash and I'll put it on my credit card along with my order. And so so people sort of solved that other ways. And, and that would have been perhaps an opportunity if Frank had exact change to just just ask somebody else to put it on their credit card. Sometimes somebody's happy to, you know, get get the get the frequent flyer miles or whatever by by using their card. You know, Seth also it becomes an issue for children traveling alone in what airlines call sort of the uh, unaccompanied minor program. Those people probably aren't buying alcoholic beverages, but many airlines sell food and things like that. And you want, you know, certainly you'd want your teenager or someone who you're sending on a flight and maybe paying the airline to make sure that they get on at the, on the right plane and are met when they get off the plane and things like that, that they can have something to eat. And so airlines have found ways to give them vouchers and things like that so that they can, even though they may not have their credit card, they can participate in the onboard, you know, meal or dining or you know, snack experience that the airline offers. So there are ways airlines can deal with this when they know what's going to happen in advance. It's that it's that spontaneous issue of, oh, I don't have my credit card. And then really the customer next door, like you mentioned, is the only real solution. Yeah. Well, now on final approach here on the show, have you heard about Victor the cat? That's V-I-K-T-O-R. Uh, Aeroflot wouldn't allow him in the cabin of a flight from Moscow to Riga, the capital of Latvia, because he was too fat, 22 pounds, whereas the maximum weight uh, for a cat on Aeroflot is about 18 pounds. Uh, they do it in kilograms. Uh, so his his person used social media to find a body double, a slimmer tabby cat who looks kind of like Victor. He took the slimmer cat in the carrier to be weighed and then swapped out that cat, which he gave back to that cat's person, of course, for Victor. Oh, the ruse probably would have worked, but then he... I'm talking about the person, not the cat, bragged about what he did on social media, posting pictures of Victor posing in business class with a glass of champagne. It's it's all out there on the internet if you want to find it. Uh, well, Aeroflot saw all this, uh, was not as amused as the rest of us. And among other rep- retribution, they wiped out the man's frequent flyer account. Not sure what they did to Victor's frequent flyer miles. Uh, but Ben... Um, 
some of our listeners probably already read Victor's story. So that's not what I want to tell you about. What I want to tell you about is the best TV appearance, uh, appearance rather, I've ever had a chance to make. A, a network called RTVI, which is an independent Russian language network, managed to get Victor and his person to appear live on TV. Quite a coup, right? Well, then they asked me to join the show to provide some per- perspective about airline rules, about pets traveling in cabins. And I said, sure. But I said, didn't they want to also hear from my cats? So my three cats, you've met them, Ben, Fred, Oscar, and Molly, and I were all on Russian language TV last week uh, in a split screen live with Victor from Latvia. And it was absolutely hilarious. It's the it's the most fun I've ever had. <laughs> What a what a great story, Seth. I laugh so hard at this story. And it also, among the many things I love about this story, was how people can be so brilliant and so stupid at the same time. <laughs> you can come up with such a devious but clever way to get your fat cat through the loophole. And then you you just can't keep it. You have to, to go meow about it. Yeah. All over the internet. You have to go meow about it. And the airline I had almost no choice but to say, wait a second. You outed yourself here, <laughs> canceling all the freaking fire miles. I mean, that's. I mean, I guess it's good that he and his cat like aren't living the rest of their life in Siberia or something. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's so great that you got to sort of meet the guy at least. Virtually. Yeah, I, I do have to say, Ben, uh, our three cats flew exactly one time when we moved from Fort Lauderdale up up to Washington. Uh, it, it was crazy uh you know a, a toddler at the time a, a human toddler plus three cats on this one jet blue flight uh and all i know Ben, is that at least one of our cats uh was probably lucky that jet blue did not weigh them <laughs> or they would have been in the same spot as uh as poor victor <laughs> yeah i know and it's uh i think it's uh i think it's funny that when you when i saw the picture of the fat cat he, he, yeah, he looked like a fat cat, but I still think it's kind of funny that they still weighed yeah. the cat. And, and it, again, there's so many things about the story that are funny, but the real issue here is if he hadn't sort of crowed about it, to use another animal <laughs> analogy there, he would have gotten yeah. away with it. Yeah, too. definitely. Uh, most airlines, by the way, U.S. airlines, uh, they'll have limits about the size of, of the carrier, but not... Uh, specifically the weight of the animal. And I think they probably just figured that, you, you know, well, if, if, if the animal fits, I mean, it's not going to be a hundred pounds if it fits in one of those little carriers under the seat, but uh, uh, Aerofly. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, it's like a USPS. Flight <laughs> exactly. Box. Right. Kind of <laughs> governs itself. Unless <laughs> you have a really <laughs> dense cat. Right. Well, that does it for this week's show. It's time to fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seat backs and tray tables on their upright and locked position as our flight attendants come through the aisle to collect any unwanted podcasts. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com. We're also now on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, so you should be able to find us in any way you choose. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Ben Baldanza. And I'm Seth Kaplan. Talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com.